You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Welcome to another live program here on Voice of Islam radio station. This is the Drive Time Show, and today you are joined by myself, Safir, and Imran um, here at the uh, Drive Time Show as we bring you two topics, two very interesting topics, uh, two very pertinent topics, uh, especially with the um, keeping in mind the current uh, situation of uh, economic crisis, um, we, we're going to talk about school and cost of living, and that's obviously related to the overall cost of um, the, the the economic uh, impact that uh, uh, the economic recession you can say that is uh, we are seeing um, in the UK and also in the rest of the world. Um, and that is also filtering down to the education sector as well. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about in the first hour. Uh, Imran, um, you know, this uh, this aspect is also important to remember, isn't it? That, uh, yes, we have talked about the economic crisis. We have talked about how, you know, difficult the situation is with uh, people uh, not being able to afford, um, people struggling to pay their rents, people struggling to provide for their families, but one aspect that we're going to look at and one aspect I think that uh, we're going to talk about today is the education sector and how schools and families and children who go to schools, um, they are also being affected of this, right? Absolutely, Sarisa. Um, I mean, um, everybody's um, struggling um, in uh, like um, cost of living crisis, but especially you know children and schools are really struggling. So, 90% of school will um, bankrupt uh, in 2023 uh, in the energy crisis. And school in um, funding crisis as demand for free meals increases. School considering uh, to teach online one day a week to deal with uh, crippling energy costs. So uh, that shows, you know, a 90% of school go, will go bankrupt by the next year. So that shows the situation uh, we are facing today. And uh, these are some of the, um, you know, headlines which kept occurring in the news for last uh, few weeks. Uh, the cost of living is not just hitting homes, but school as well. So some 1.8 million children face uh, poor quality school meals as, as a result of the um, rising cost of food. So um, cuts are also being made in school resources as increased fuel cost. Uh, on top, um, unfunded teacher pay increases have hit school budgets hard. So one can imagine the you know situation we are facing um, yeah. nowadays. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a very uh, you know grim sort of headline as you you mentioned earlier, but it does show that potentially uh, we're not saying that. They will, you know, but potentially if that, uh, you know, economic uh, situation continues, that um, a lot of schools will struggle to even run 
mm-hmm. in a couple of years. So, and the other thing, of course, as you mentioned, was that the quality of education, mm-hmm. uh, the quality of the facilities, you could say, um, in schools will also be impacted. I mean, the food that children have, obviously, you know, you want the children to be able to have healthy food and nice, you know, food that um, is, is uh, nutritious for them, which is good for them, because obviously that's part of, you know, a healthy upbringing. Mm-hmm. But if the school have to, you know, manage the cost in such a way that they have to reduce the quality of the food, then again, that will affect the children. Absolutely. Plus, um, also the energy costs, we always know that, you know, the energy costs in schools are also pretty high and the energy in general has been very expensive and mm-hmm. it keeps going up. So it is really uh, something that, uh, that that is concerning because, you know, education and our children are the future of the society and if they are, uh, you know, uh, impacted by this and if investing is not right, investment is not right, the proper education and care of them is not up to the standard and that will, you know, affect the whole new generation. Um, but Imran, what does uh, Islam say about education and uh, uh, seeking knowledge? I mean, uh, Islam is very clear on seeking knowledge. Um, for example, uh, one incident which just came into my mind it, uh, is when, you know, um, in the Battle of Badr, um, um, the war of captives, uh, cap- captives were um, were um, captured by the Muslims. So uh, the Holy Prophet ﷺ suggests that um, we are not going to take the ransom uh, for the war captives. Um, the ransom for them is if they can uh, tell the children uh, of Medina, uh, told them how to write and how to read, then th- this will be their ransom. So that shows how much Islam and the Holy Prophet ﷺ, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, prioritize and uh, yeah. emphasize um, education uh, because uh, as you mentioned before that education is something uh, which is education especially for the children because children um, for uh, children are the uh, future for every country and every nation if they are not taught c- correctly or if they are not uh, take care of correctly then um, the future of the country um, uh, will be in danger so that yeah. is that is one of the aspects Exactly. And also Islam has encouraged the people very much to acquire knowledge in science. I mean, people, uh, you know, of all backgrounds are encouraged to seek knowledge. I mean, even, you know, when it comes to men, women, everyone, actually the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that it is obligatory for every Muslim, man and woman, to seek knowledge, to acquire knowledge, to gain skills, you know. So often people say, in, oh, Muslim women, uh, you know, might be suppressed or they cannot uh, do, you know, seek knowledge or uh, have a, you know, uh, good education or job, which is completely wrong. Islam actually encourages and makes it obligatory for men, uh, men and women to seek knowledge. And I think that is... Uh, something of a very high level that Islam doesn't give you just an option that you should ga- gain education but Islam makes it makes it obligatory mm-hmm. that it is a must, must that you because without knowledge without education it is very difficult to be uh, survive and also to uh, be useful in the society and society cannot function 
if there was no you know uh, sharing of knowledge teaching learning so another um saying of the holy prophet muhammad peace and blessings be upon blessings. him that we can talk about is that he said that the best charity is when a muslim man gains knowledge and then he teaches it to his muslim brother and again you know the respect for teachers and the 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 reward um for for, for the teachers those who teach other people um it is great in islam and islam you know teaches us to respect our teachers and um, share our knowledge with other people so coming back to you know the topic that we're talking about schools and the cost of living and how it will impact this education sector mm-hmm. what we have to remember is that when we are going through this uh, uh, economic economic crisis um we have to try everything to prevent that the children or the future obviously those children who are going to be the future and those in education that they should not be impacted by this because of course then that will affect the whole future of a society absolutely so Ibrahim, um let's let's have a look at what's 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 happening uh, recently and what are the issues in more detail yeah so we just to give the um, just to give you the uh, overlook of of the uh, to the audience the cost of living is increasing uh, quite literally by the week hitting households who are already even prior to the current uh, crisis struggling especially hard so the cost of um, and their fuel food and energy have increased uh, meaning that they are now afford even less to what they could previously uh mm. and uh, the need for free school meals have surged by 200% compared to previous years so that that's a big number huge number mm. and teachers um picking uh, pupils up from homes who can't afford the bus uh, fare to school food banks opening from classrooms um and uh, deli- de- uh, delivering parcels to vulnerable students uh, job clubs for unemployed parents and school are increasing uh, increasingly becoming crisis uh, center for struggling families um and falling deeper and deeper into poverty but head teachers are facing their own funding uh, catastrophe so that shows that you know um that th- this is the situation and um you know uh, i mentioned that um to uh, the f- and the uh, surge for free meals is increased by 200% which shows that you know um Uh, that how this energy crisis is hitting especially the children because most of the parents uh most of the parents can't afford the breakfast or lunch for their for their ch- uh, children and uh, uh the one quality meal which you know uh, most of the um um uh, people get um is from the school actually so if uh, we are going to cut down uh, the meal then how this going to be affect very badly to the students Mm. and energy bills as well have already um tripled and food bills are up. we already talked about how obviously schools are also going to be affected by them um but there there is obviously a winter coming up and, and you know things will unfortunately it seems like you know things are going to get even more harder and difficult um however let's have a look at what has been happening the government has added that it's providing an extra 4 billion pounds of funding to schools and to help with the um, discounted energy bills for 6 months mm-hmm. unions uh, head teachers and families uh, are really calling for urgent action uh, 
um, in the worst case scenarios, uh, some head teachers are warning schools can go bankrupt, as we you know mentioned in the beginning of the show, within a year or two, and are already having to choose whether to keep staff or feed their children. So it is uh, a little bit you know depressing um, looking at this uh, aspect, but it's nevertheless important, and uh, we hope and we pray that you know. Um, these uh, issues with uh, with especially involving children and uh, their environment, they are safeguarded and they are provided with the you know the best suitable uh, facilities for them so they can you know grow up in a in a healthy environment. Uh, I think uh, we we'll have a caller. Uh, should we go to the caller and then we? Uh... Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So uh, we have uh, Michael head with us. Um, it was a pleasure to have you, uh, Michael, uh, on this show um, this afternoon. Uh, assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Thank you. Pleasure to speak to you. Okay. Uh, Michael, so schools in the UK are facing funding crisis due to the uh, energy crisis. Could you tell us what schools have had to go through up until now to remain open and facilitate their teachers and students? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly, like you say, in recent months, it's become particularly difficult. So we, the, the government has been saying they've, they've put four billion pounds, I think you report, and, and I think that's true. But there are also lots more children in schools. So there are more children every year, so part of that covers that. And as everybody knows from their home bills and, and the cost of living, schools are facing much higher costs, both in terms of paying their staff and particularly with energy bills this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that that small increase in school funding, which we've shared across the whole country, is obviously not keeping up with mm-hmm. the other costs that schools have. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, what do you think, uh, what will happen during winter? How likely uh, it is for school to have the uh, to have uh, considered going online for a day in a week? Um, I think I think this winter, I think that's less likely. So I think lots of schools at the moment are, are looking nervously towards this winter. I know, you know, like in all places, like at home, we're, we're reluctant to put the heating on. We're waiting a bit longer. We're encouraging people to wrap up warmer. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this year, most schools will, will survive. The concern will be that actually, what, like you were reporting earlier, they'll find they haven't got enough money at the end of the year to carry on. And we can't right. carry on in that same vein in the long term. Mm-hmm. So... Um Michael, you, um, can you tell us, I mean, um, online teaching or uh, on Zoom teaching, uh, I mean, it's not um, uh, less effect, not very effective in my opinion, that, uh, you know, um, uh, as you have one-to-one contraction with the teacher in the classroom. So uh, if school go back to uh, teaching online for a day in a week, what impact will that have on the students and their uh, teachers? You're absolutely right. It's definitely not as effective. You, you can't get that interaction. You can't get the understanding of where the children are at. It's not as effective as a two-way medium. Um, and actually, the biggest impact is always on the children who already have the greatest need. Mm-hmm. So those children who might benefit from extra support in school from other adults wouldn't have that there. Those children who are already struggling with reading, perhaps, wouldn't have the help with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also those children who are coming from families where perhaps there isn't the same amount of money, Sometimes they have trouble even accessing the online lessons or they don't have the resources they need to do it or they don't have the reliable internet connection. So it, it really makes the gap much wider between the children who, who can get on with their learning and those who can't, and mm. particularly affecting the most disadvantaged more. Right. So, Michael, we were discussing uh, previously in the show that um, for like many many children, the proper and hot meal they get uh, in, a, in a day is from school. And we also see that demand of free uh, school meals has increased are schools able to keep up with the demand and uh, what else um, 
one can uh, done in this regard? Yeah, I, I think it, it's it's a challenge. So um, obviously, I, so I'm a primary school head. We, we already have a number of children who have free school meals. What we find is lots of families who are really struggling. Mm-hmm. Actually, they're not eligible for the free school meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we worry about those families and we want to try to support them. But also, again, like families finding in their houses, the costs for schools of putting a meal together are going up and up. Um, and the funding from government isn't. So that's going to become harder. And I think, again, it's going to eat into the money that schools have got. So they're now not spending it on supporting children's learning because they're having to meet the extra cost of catering for those additional numbers of children. And that, that's a real concern for us, really. Is, yeah, over this winter with school bills and then extra food costs and more and more children wanting to eat that food, it, it does become more of a burden on school budgets. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, you mentioned uh, that government is trying to uh, you know, fund. How how has the government been supporting uh, like struggling schools and what else can be done? Well, so this year we did have an increase. So for, for um, children who are, have free school meals or children when they're infants or children who are under seven get a free meal regardless of their home circumstances. Mm-hmm. And the government has given a little bit more money to schools for that this year. I think it was an extra five or six pence per meal. Um, but what we're finding already is the companies who do the catering putting prices up by 10 or 15 pence per meal um, and that's the reality is that we need government to meet the new costs that schools have so we're not saying that we need more money for extra things in school we're just saying the things we have to provide the basics of paying a teacher salary paying for the heating bills paying for the free school meals have all gone up much more than the government funding is and, that, and that's what we need we need them to to match those costs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, lastly, how important do you think uh, it is for students to have a hot meal during the school day? Uh, research has uh, shown the positive impacts uh, a hot meal lunch can have on studying. Um, have you seen any such correlation? Uh, there is. I, mean, I, I think um, I mean, one of the big things I would say is uh, children having a decent breakfast before they come to school is probably as important. And that's one of the areas where I think we'll see more and more need, particularly if families are having to work extra hours. We'll see more children who haven't got the support at home or perhaps the resources not at home. But yeah, also for lots of children, that hot meal might be their only hot meal in the day. So just for their well-being, we talk about the government says one of the big issues at the moment is attendance and not enough children being in school. Well, actually, if, if they're hungry, it's going to leave them more likely to be ill and unwell and not able to access school in the first place. I think that's the concern is we know there are going to be more struggling families. We've got to make sure the support is there so that children are getting to school and are ready to learn. Thank you so much, uh, Michael, uh, to coming um, on our uh, show this afternoon. Um, it was a pleasure to have you. Um, peace be upon him. Thank you. So this was um, Michael Ted, uh, who was uh, telling about uh, about the different um, situation and uh, how they are, how people are struggling, and how uh, uh, teachers and especially parents are trying to. Um, uh, trying to uh, survive in this crisis um so mm. you so before um, we have a, before uh, we're talking about the uh, some of the stats and uh, i was saying that um, two, uh, the uh, the surge for um free meal have increased 200% and uh, you were also uh, quoting his holiness hazrat mirza masrur ahmed yeah no i mean the thing is that it's free school meal right i mean that's uh, something that as the as michael explained you know it's mm-hmm. it's a right for the for the children uh, regardless the, the 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 reality is that the energy prices has increased and the cost of of producing that food has obviously increased i mean we go to the to the to the shop right we go to the 
to get your uh, shopping uh, from uh, from from the supermarket you, you already see that you know basic items as well everything is basically gone up you know um mm-hmm. 20 30p easily right mm-hmm. so you see you see that difference and that obviously when these companies as michael was saying that these companies who produce that food or who make that food and pro- provide it supply it to the to the schools their costs are also um you know going up so for example the ingredients plus making them plus you know salaries for for those people employed plus the transport cost of bringing those meals to the school so all of that is increasing hence you know the budget it's above the budget of the schools and the schools need more money so it's not like as you said that you know there is they are asking for more variety of food or you know any kind of you know special meals but it's actually just the overall costing in, in every aspect of that is increasing which is causing um you know the problem so and that's the fact everywhere really and that's just uh, you know something which is really sad because it's affecting the uh, overall you know uh, poverty as well uh, that uh, and, and affordability uh, for many uh, many um, families and children uh, across the country so um it is something that really needs to be taken uh, seriously and properly um uh, looked at at the you know as a whole and also from the government side and i'm sure they're trying to do that mm-hmm. um his holiness hazam izam sun ahmed the melabi's helper who is the worldwide head of the amia muslim community has said uh, in a address to a gathering of dignitaries um he said that according to the prevalent circumstances of the time it is the job of the governments to provide such workers with appropriate salaries and the best possible working conditions so that the gap between the rich and the poor can be reduced as much as possible to provide such facilities and employment rights is also the responsibility of the rich companies or organizations that employ such workers unlike socialism islam does not say that the wealth of the rich should be forcibly taken from them and that they should only be permitted to keep a basic amount islam does not advocate a system whereby employer and employee are made equal rather islam says that a country's resources form the national wealth and so they should be used to serve every class and every segment of society the wealth of a nation should be used to ensure that every member of society has access to certain essential facilities mm-hmm. i think that is such a comprehensive you know uh, advice given by the worldwide head of the amiga muslim community look mm-hmm. nobody's saying that you know you should 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 take all the wealth away from the rich people right. but you know fair taxing is really important i mean you cannot in a in in a state of crisis mm-hmm. cut the taxes you know f- for the rich um and you cannot uh, you know uh, allow the resources of an of a country a uh, country's uh, resources to be spent on things that are less important right. and things that are most important of course is to to spend on on trying to bridge that gap between the poorest in the society mm-hmm. and the richest and that's exactly i mean islam does allow you to be rich islam does have you know in 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 early islam there were some very wealthy muslims as well like right. you know hazrat usman radhiyallahu anhu and notable others who were very wealthy but they also you know paid their due uh, share and that wealth really you know and their sacrifices really helped helped uh, you know 
um, you know, uh, helping the poor and, and the mm-hmm. needy in the society. So that, again, is the system of Islam, and that's, you know, what, where zakat comes in as well. We talked about zakat right. um, in, in one of our programs some time ago. But again, mm-hmm. we need, um, you know, countries and nations to be uh, more, um, you know, strict in terms of making sure that that money, mm-hmm. uh, that wealth is also shared with um, people that need that. Uh, absolutely. I'm sorry you talked about and he you quoted His Holiness Hazrat Mr. Masur Ahmed that Islam says that a country's resources form the national wealth. So that's I think that's mm-hmm. a very important uh, sentence because um, whatever we get is actually uh, we are getting from the national wealth or we we're forming um, our wealth from the um, uh, country's resources. So in that yeah. way, um, in that way we um, you know. Uh, uh, a uh, fortunate uh, sector of the um, country they are they all you know duties to towards these um, poor society uh, towards the mm. poor portion of the country so it is very much emphasized in islam as we also um, talked about in a couple of um, shows that you know to take care um, uh, to take care islam very much emphasize on um, to take care of the less fortunate portion of the society and it is our responsibility and through that we can build a society um, um, and we can build a, such a society which you know um, which cares about each other and brotherhood so um, it is very important absolutely um, I think we can also look at um, how this is impacting schools I mean we have talked about the mm-hmm. you know basic uh, issues that we are finding but also in terms of uh, staff. Uh, now, many head teachers have warned that nine in ten schools will be insolvent by next year due to the um, out of control energy prices and the rising teachers' salaries to meet the cost of the living demand. Mm-hmm. They have further warned that teaching support roles could be lost, and around half of all schools will be in the red before 2022 mm-hmm. is over. Um, meaning that there will be less supporting staff, so you will have only, you know, at the main uh, positions mm-hmm. um, occupied, and you will not have, you know, extra assistance and teaching support roles that are important, where you have so many children that needs to be looked after. Right. Um, and then head teachers have also said that as a consequence of them running out of money, there will be larger class sizes with a reduced curriculum, and the proposed spending cuts will finish. Uh, many schools so of course that again will impact the students if there is large classes with less you know one-to-one or um, less uh, focus on, uh, on on people individually students individually mm-hmm. and that obviously will uh, with with obviously a changed curriculum as well you cannot mm-hmm. do as much as you did before then obviously that will affect their education mm-hmm. also the Oasis Foundation who runs 52 academies in England has also warned that at this burn rate, in under three years, we will be bankrupt. So there is a serious problem mm-hmm. um, financially uh, for education sector and especially schools that we simply cannot, you know, allow to happen. Absolutely, Sphere. As we um, previously uh, talked about, uh, that uh, you know, students um, are the future of um, every country, and if we're not uh, going to uh, um, put uh, in put input on on our students and our children then uh, the future uh, I'm not saying I'm not like um, um, saying that 
it's going to every go, everything going to be ruined but the future is dark if if we can't you know invest on our students and especially um the research has shown that you know uh, it it really um if if a children is not getting uh, enough food and uh, you know not enough um, um uh, clothes and and books uh, so recently i think uh, you have also seen the video on and social media very viral video on social media that um that there is a mom who uh, trying to you know steal something and uh, she get caught and uh, she were saying that uh, i don't have money i need to feed my children and i don't have uniform and stuff like that so um at the end they they basically uh, leave her but uh, that shows the desperation in the society and uh, um uh, you know a lot of the people they don't really you know understand that people are really struggling uh, to keep up with their day to day expense and uh, um so for example um there is a different um obviously there is a different kind of poverty in in the uk uh, but people are really struggling to provide uh, the basic necessity to their children so let's ta- talk about you know um what's help is there um so um basically um a spokesperson um for a department uh, for education said we understand that schools are facing uh, cost pressure due to international events driving up energy prices um the spokesperson added that school will receive 53.8 billion in funds this year as well as the energy relief scheme and there will be a um cash increase of 4 billion however they'll uh, however this um, this will not be enough uh, so what do you think call us and uh, we can have a discussion meanwhile i'll take a small break and we'll meet after the break allahu akbar allahu akbar allah اشهد ان لا اله الا الله اشهد ان محمدا listening to the voice of islam radio welcome back to voice of islam and uh, we are having discussion on school and cost of uh, living crisis you can um, you can talk uh, you can call us uh, on the number 02086877878 and you can also tweet us or um, directly call us to um, have a discussion with us uh, safir uh what do you think um um what what help is there yeah imran i think um, we have talked a lot about you know the issues uh, let's also look at what help is is available of course we did talk about the rising cost of everything energy and um everything else around it but a uh, spokesperson for the department of education obviously just from the government said that 
We understand that schools are facing cost pressures due to international events driving up energy prices. Um, they also added that schools will receive 53.8 billion pounds in funding this year, as well as the energy relief scheme, and there will be a cash increase of 4 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, these are numbers, and you hear them that you obviously would think that, yes, there is um, a lot of money going in. But the question is, is this enough or um, is, you know, the approach to tackle this uh, issue something that needs to be looked at again? Um, because obviously we, we, we don't know how much cost is being incurred, you know, um, annually in the whole country for all schools basically who will be struggling. So looking at that number... Um, you know, it's difficult to say whether that would be enough to, you know, solve all the issues that schools are facing. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about, uh, we have a guest, um, Jane O'Sullivan. I'm very sorry if I pronounce uh, her name um, uh, wrongly. Um, so she is a CEO of Live um, uh, Nurseries. Um, welcome to our show, Jane. Uh, it's June uh-huh. and uh, yeah, and I'm uh, very happy to be with you. Um, June. So, um, um, peace be upon him. Assalamu alaikum. Um, so, just to um, start off, could you tell us uh, how has the correct economic um, climate impact nurses and um, preschool in the UK? Okay, so it's quite a worry. Um, we have we don't have access to any additional funding. I noticed the um, chap that was speaking before me said that the Department for Education is giving schools something like fifty-three million mm-hmm. pounds, which actually, when you spread it out, isn't a great deal when you think about the number of schools that has to share that. But we receive nothing. So mm-hmm. um, what we're trying to do is hold our fees down for as long as we possibly can, um, mm-hmm. because we realise parents are struggling. Um, the cost of food has gone has been uh, one of the biggest uh, increases for us and I know like I run the London Early Years Foundation which is as you said is is known as LEAF um, and many of our children come from uh, more poorer communities and so I'm desperately keen not to reduce their food and to make sure that they have a proper you know proper lunch every day because we have a chef academy because while you have um, you know, people having a real crisis of being able to afford to feed their children. You also have an increase in child obesity. So you have these two bad, um, a kind of uh, unbalanced um, crises happening mm-hmm. for small children. So, um, so that's something we're trying to do. I, and you'll also notice that in a lot of nurseries now, sadly, mm-hmm. um, there are food banks, right. uh, there are clothes banks, there are um, all sorts of support. Uh, around uh, things that people can't afford, like uh, one of the big things is toothpaste. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of places are trying to do that as well. But fundamentally, mm-hmm. um, the issue is going to hit people because the only way they can manage that cost is to increase the fees. Um, so what then you're seeing is that some parents are reducing their hours. Um, mm-hmm. We've put in shorter days to support our parents um, and uh, more flexibility around places as well, you know, to try and make sure that people could balance maybe some family support with the children going to nursery um, and then, you know, balancing that with the work uh, hours that the parents have to have to meet. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a bit of uh, boxing and coxing, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you June, um, uh, sorry, Imran, just one, one question yeah, I wanted to ask uh, uh, was that uh, regarding 
the uh, you know we just mentioned that the government has the department of education has said that they have uh, you know they're going to um, invest uh, uh, for 53 billion uh, in funding this year as well as you know provide the energy relief scheme and there'll be a cash increase of 4 billion these numbers do they do justice to the to the, the, the to, to the scale of the issue that we have well, if you think um, the majority of nurseries in this country are what they call private or voluntary, so we're a social enterprise, so we're a charitable business that um, runs nurseries in London. We have 39 nurseries across London. But if you think about across the the UK, 27,000 nurseries are private, more or less, and so therefore this isn't going to affect them because this is Department for Education giving services to schools, giving funding to schools, so that, that there will be no money dripped down, even though half a million children attend nurseries every day, across, um, certainly across England. So, you know, people throw around these kind of figures, but they don't necessarily translate into reality for a lot of the sector. Um, the, the, the the currently, the early years, is underfunded by £2 billion a year, and that figure comes directly from the Department for Education. So they themselves acknowledge they don't fund enough for the basic contribution to a place. So they're already behind you know, the curve on this. So to really help parents, they'd need to actually pay the gap, which is, as I say, well behind in terms of the hourly rate, so that therefore the contribution they give to the settings can actually keep the price then low for the parents and also mean that we can pay our staff, um, you know, a reasonable rate because the staff are also experiencing this cost of living rise too. Mm. Mm -hmm. June, uh, have you witnessed any parents struggling in particular during the current times? And perhaps Yes, we, we have. We, mm -hmm. we absolutely have. People are really scared about things, especially people living in private rented housing. They're very mm -hmm. feeling very insecure about their position. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, as I say, parents have been um, really trying to balance out how many days can we work? Have we got anybody that can, you know, in the family who can look after the child for, you know, maybe a day? Mm -hmm. But this is London and um, family networks and family kinship in London is much less than in other parts of the country. So. Right you're less likely to have your grandparents or, you know, your extended family available to Absolutely. you, no matter what community you come from, mm -hmm. actually, in, in London. So, you know, the, 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 there's no, the, you know, there's not going to be a range of people available for people to say, oh, well, you know, she can stay with her auntie for two days this week and that'll, you know, reduce costs for me. Mm -hmm. the, it doesn't quite work as neatly as that, um, but people are trying to do what they can on that. And then, of course, we have to remember mm -hmm. that the person, the most important person in all of this is the child. Right. So we can't just be putting them, you know, here and there and not giving them a really good experience. I mean, you know, good quality nurseries, well-taught, you know, well-trained teachers with good understanding of how children develop are good for children i mean they do well in these places they do they do well but if you give them poor quality mm -hmm. with under you know under supported teaching not very great trained t teachers to to lead on that that's not good for the children and we don't want that do we we want them to have the best experience so you're kind of caught in this very difficult position at the moment mm -hmm. june i'm not sure if you have um saw that video a very viral video on uh, on social media where uh, mom is um stealing basically for for her child and she um when she ca get caught she was uh, desperately saying that uh, you know um i don't have money and i need to feed my children and you know to get them the new uniform oh. so what's your comment on that video what's 
Well, I think whatever we do, that mm-hmm. whatever happens, that we must make sure that when a child comes to nursery, we feed them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's absolutely as well, the way we see it. I mean, you, you know, they could come and at least they'd come and they'd get, we'd give them breakfast, we'd give them a proper lunch because we have a proper, you know, training academy for our chefs so that it's good quality food and right. we give them tea to go home. So I think it'd be, be pretty awful if they end up coming to nursery and they're not actually given a proper meal, because at least that's one pressure off a parent mm-hmm. who knows that, you know, their child has had a good, nutritious, well-balanced meal during during the day. And even if the government did nothing and it just allowed, you know, just an increase in funding that made sure that every child got fed properly, that would be one thing, for, you know, for parents to feel less anxious about, because feeding your child is essential as your role as a parent that's what mm-hmm. it's about isn't it it's about making sure your child are fit and healthy absolutely mm-hmm. so Jean, do you think um closing a daycare or school for a one day in a week is the best solution to combat the energy crisis um yeah i'm very bemused by it. i'm very bemused <laughs> by that by that it does you're the second person that's asked me this question today mm-hmm. it's like, well you know it doesn't matter whether we close one day or not we still have to pay our staff we still you know your, your rent doesn't change your council tax doesn't change your bills really don't go down that much mm-hmm. <laughs> so i don't think it would make that much difference <laughs> at all i think actually as a country we should appreciate our children much more and the value that they have for us and that they are literally the future. And I think we haven't, they can always find money for things. They're always finding money for things, aren't they? So it's not actually that much extra to pay properly for the children mm-hmm. to have, um, you know, a good experience in nursery and a, prop, and a proper meal. We know it's two, two billion a year and that might seem like an awful lot, but you know, you're quoting four billion at me mm-hmm. a minute ago mm-hmm. saying that they could find that from the education education department this it's about priorities and it's about status it's about mm-hmm. the priority of actually valuing our children uh, every child and making sure they all have access to this not just lucky ones who happen to have parents who earn enough money that can afford to send them to nursery it should be for all children to have the best experience so i, I think really <laughs> you know we need campaigns all over the place to make sure people realize that you know, often think people think that it's somebody else's child, but it's not. Every child is our child. Every child is part mm-hmm. of the community. It's, we ha- all have a responsibility for everyone's right. child to make sure they have the best experience. Mm-hmm. So, June, uh, what sort of measure have you taken already to combat the energy crisis? Um, well, we did a whole review of the energy, as you can probably imagine, looking at where we could cost it down. We do a lot of work on sustainability as well, so we've been really working hard to try and um, balance our energy through, you know, different sources. Um, We already have, as I said, a Chef Academy, so one of their tasks was to look at making sure that it's locally sourced, seasonally sourced food that you could, you know, have good menus that are really well balanced, but they're not, you know, we don't need to be eating melon this time of the year. You know, you don't need to be having avocados. You can create really good menus with very seasonal food. Mm -hmm. Um, Our own staff, so staff that work for LEAF, um, if they have a child with us, we reduce their fees by 70% so that they can at least afford to work and have their children at nursery with us. Mm-hmm. Um, our staff have all received a cost of living bonus. Um, and I hope to give them something for Christmas as well as a treat. Uh, but trying to do what we can, really, because we're a, a social enterprise, so we're not driven by, you know, dividends or shareholders. We can spend every penny we have on the children and on the staff. So that's that's what we're trying to do. But to be honest, it's just still not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 
it's still not enough we know that but we can only do what we can what we can only do so that food banks you know children's clothes swaps um, all those kind of things are just they're just sticking plasters but we're mm-hmm. doing them mm-hmm. but i'd love to be able to do something far more far more important and the only way we can do that is to be properly funded all right Thank you so much, uh, June, uh, to coming uh, to our show. It was a pleasure to have you. Assalamu alaikum. A peace be upon you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank, Thank you. you. So yeah, we were as uh, as um, we were discussing um, before uh, with Safir Sab as well, and that um, you know, and the, the the parents are really struggling uh, to um, to cope with this um, energy crisis. And uh, uh, let's let's have a look uh, what. Um, you know what school have to go back um, uh, will school have to go back to online teaching so the most dreadful headlines uh, parents have been reading um, has to be the one about school may have to go back to online teaching for some days in this in the week so uh, we're discussing with the with the uh, Jan as well so uh, Safir sir uh, what's your um, uh, what's your take on uh, um, you know um, as we're talking uh, with jane that uh, it it's one 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 day off in the week doesn't make any sense mm. no i mean as uh, june said you know it it's not going to make a big difference because mm-hmm. you still have to you know pay the salaries of the teachers right. you still have to pay the rent the council tax and all the other bills you know it's you know it's not going to make a big <laughs> big difference it's probably better for the children to be at school than than mm-hmm. than not come so I don't think that's the solution and it certainly seems like, you know, an idea that's not going to be very productive uh, because obviously you don't want to go back to the online teaching method that happened during COVID. We already mm-hmm. had about a year and a half of that. So, you know, really, you know, that's that's something that's uh, that has been like a lost time for the children mm-hmm. so you don't want to increase that and make them go back to that so i think that's not really uh, a good solution or a good idea um however you know when it comes to the uh, the bills then we have to remember that like commercial cost uh, is is sometimes even more than the cost of uh, residential uh, you know places or houses like you know for example a a, a business or a school or um, you know um, a facility might might use you know what fifty thousand maybe you know or hundred thousand a year would be their bills maybe just as, as an example and with the cost of living crisis if it's gone up by four or five times then you're looking at potentially you know something from fifty thousand to hundred thousand increasing to you know two hundred two hundred fifty thousand so mm-hmm. that. a rapid increase that's a, an increase that really is uh, unaffordable and um, as um, as june also mentioned that there is no other way of uh, financially you know providing i mean every every penny money is basically basically put into categories and there it's for the children for their education so i think just just imagine that and if we look at that uh, the 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 way the the costs are rising mm-hmm. in that way there's no exaggeration that you know some of these schools that are have having to cope with this uh, you know a year two years that they they cannot probably afford that uh, after that so it is really uh, concerning um and and online teaching it's 
you know, mm-hmm. it's not the solution. Uh, mm-hmm. We have seen the impact of online teaching right. uh, during the pandemic. Uh, so it, it's it's not uh, something that uh, is the solution. The solution, again, I think June also made a very, very good point that mm-hmm. we, we tend to find the money for, for different things that uh, are maybe less important. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, education is key. So why can't, you know, the the, the authorities, why can't the government, you know, make sure that this is prioritized. I think that's there should be no really not really any compromise on this, is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so just we mentioned, you know, um going online uh, one day in a week. in my personal opinion I'm totally against uh, you know, totally against um with the virtual uh, learning. Um because um uh, virtual learning is maybe a short term uh, solution for to tackling the problem we're facing today. But in long term the idea of virtual learning has affected the students in a negative way. So I was having a discussion with a couple of my friends and they were saying yeah. that it is it is a really um, effect it, it has really affected us in a bad way because um, because things uh, you, you can learn you know with one to one contraction you can't you can't teach uh, that thing online and also schools provide you the environment of learning and critical thinking which you can't have on the zoom uh, on the Absolutely. on the zoom yeah mm. and especially you know children and those in school they need sometimes, you know, to ask questions mm-hmm. to the teacher. You know, if you look at younger children, it is crucial for them to sort of be around children and they need to, like, learn from other children, you know, right. basic things, interactions, social morals, you know, how to, mm-hmm. you know, play together, share things together, um, you know, uh, follow rules and all of these things. You cannot do that online, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe for adults, you know, okay, sometimes online things can be fine. But uh, at some point, you know, you can't. You the thing is that you you cannot uh, let that be an excuse mm-hmm. for underfunding schools. Right. That's that's basically the point. Mm-hmm. And I think June made that very clearly. And I think that's a very very good two points that she has mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, um, this is a situation where um, the government needs to look into this properly and make sure that there is. Um, you know, uh, viable solution going forward. Um, mm-hmm. Pete Roberts, the uh, Powys uh, cabinet member for education, um, told a meeting of the council actually that school budgets were being looked at in detail for potential solutions. He said that we did suggest the possibility of a four-day week uh, with the fifth day being taught virtually as well as blended weeks of learning as extreme cases for consideration. Ultimately, it is the decision and responsibility of the head teacher and the chair of governors regarding school budget, um, he said, and uh, he said one size does not fit all. So schools have been asked to produce plans explaining how they will continue with children's education. Mm-hmm. Um, he, Mr. Roberts also said that the online learning could reduce the utilities cost for the schools and lead to a considerable saving. Uh, wearing coats in classrooms, he added, is something people have already been doing. Mm-hmm. For the past two winters, in some instances, a few children have had to wear their courts in their classrooms due to windows being open as part of the COVID guidance, not because the school could not afford to pay the heating bill. With COVID increasing, this situation is likely to happen again in the winter. So, you know, with COVID, yes, you know, it was a different uh, thing, okay, but to ask children to wear coats inside and, you know, in, in extreme situations, yes, you know, that that's fine, you know, in some situations that you have to compromise, but when the governments have the capability and they 
can, you know, find or channel uh, the money into the right, uh, you know, and, and basically giving priority to where where the money should go, then there should not be a need for, 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 for these kind of cuts and, you know, cutting out days from education. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it really is about prioritizing things. And I think it's really strange that we're talking about, you know, uh, spending cuts uh, um, uh, and, and basic uh, cutting down basic things for schools um, at a time where it's crucial that they get the best education. Right. So we are coming to the hour. Um, um, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmed um, said, apart from these spiritual teachings, Islam also provides us with a complete code of, uh, code of conduct about how to live in society and how to uh, conduct our social life. Islam has provided detailed guidance of how to maintain relation at all levels for every basic uh, level of, of the family unit all the way through uh, to international relation. Furthermore, Islam also teaches us to how to conduct our financial and economic affairs and outline the responsibility of a true Muslim in his um, financial dealing. Um, so I think it is a very important. And uh, with that, um, I hope um, that uh, we have um, given you something to uh, some food of thought. And uh, uh, in next hour, we are discussing uh, on the tea and um, we're just seeing what, what are the what there are different kind of teas and what a tea has effect on us you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to our um, um, show. And uh, in this hour we are discussing uh, on tea and uh, how tea is an integral part of different communities and uh, how tea has impact uh, into our day-to-day life. And uh, uh, Safir Sir, um, what what is tea for you? Look... I think this is a such, such such a special topic that we're doing. Um, I don't think we have done this topic before, mm-hmm. um, but but yeah, tea, uh, black tea, green tea, or any kind of tea. You know, I think people people love tea. Most people love tea. I mean, right. in our culture, we 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 love tea. And you know, I remember, you know, every event that we have in our community, there's always some kind of you know arrangement for tea. Uh, you know, so we call it chai in 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 our Mm-hmm. Uh, culture, Pakistani Indian culture, uh, but yeah, there are so many different types of teas. As I mentioned, black tea, green tea. Um, you have so many different kinds of teas, um, and uh, people love it. It's uh, you know, it's something that's easy to make mm-hmm. um, and something very light. Uh, you know, there's a, there could be you know something that can be used for any occasion, any time. There's there's no fixed time for tea. You know, you can have tea in the morning, tea right. in the afternoon, tea, tea in the evening. Mm-hmm. And there are so many benefits as well of different kinds of teas as well. There's, you know, really interesting uh, um, uh, to learn about different cultures and how uh, important tea is in that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's for breakfast or just any time in between meals, um, tea is a crucial part for many tea lovers around the globe. Uh, since it's the second 
most consumed drink in the world after water. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the UK, of course, UK is known to be a country that loves tea. Mm-hmm. Um, just to give you a stat, um, a number, 100 million cups per day is consumed of tea in the UK. So that's a lot of cups of teas. So, um, so yeah, apart from that, um, we, we're also going to look at the um, history of tea, I think, because uh, it's interesting to know that, you know, England, yes, England is known to be, um, you know, a country of tea where people love tea, love drinking tea. But yet then again, we, if we look back in history, there must have been a huge influence um, from, you know, when it comes to tea drinking from uh, the colonial times where when uh, England and when, when uh, Great Britain was, uh, you know, ruling over India and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of teas were uh, in, imported and, and uh, taken back from different, you know, countries mm-hmm. uh, worldwide. So, uh, it's, yeah, it's a very fascinating, very interesting topic. I think a very different topic from mm-hmm. what we normally have here on Voice yes. of Islam. Absolutely. I mean, um, as you mentioned, you know, tea is not actually a drink. I think it's uh, it's a... Uh, it's a sign of gathering when you have a when you, whenever you want to discuss something they have to be have a tea uh, especially in our uh, community or all all around the world different community different uh, back, backgrounds of the people and uh, so um, we are, as you mentioned that um, um, in uk approximately uh, 100 million uh, cups uh, people consume per day um, which is uh, which is a huge which is surprising for me so but the um, but the country with the highest per capita tea cons- consumption is surprisingly not England, China or India. It's Turkey, where the average is over three thousand cups per person per year, nine a day. Wow! So is it here? I think that's uh, it's. Uh, well, I mean, I didn't know that, but of course you can also probably expect that when you know when when you go to any Turkish restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, and especially after the you know the meals, there is always you know, tea or, um, you know, the kahwa that mm-hmm. is offered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yeah, that that, uh, that is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So a good cup of tea does something make, uh, does sometimes make all the difference, especially uh, if it is the right tea for the right purpose. Although the possible health benefits are commonly known, um, scientists have been researching and uh, conducting studies on its oral effect on human one of Allah the Almighty's attributes is Ar-Razak, the provider, which is why Allah has provided uh, nature with countless elements of nutritional value for its creation. Um, so let's have a quality time today on Drive Tribe Show. Make yourself a good cup of tea and sit back and enjoy uh, this hour and discuss uh, with us that how, uh, what is tea, what, what is tea for you and what does tea meant for you. So, um, Safir, um, just to um, um, just to information of for the over um, mm. listeners, um, uh, what is tea really known for? So, the not so common fact is that uh, all teas uh, derived from derived from the same plant, uh, which is known as Camilla Camellia uh, sinensis. This is a subtropical evergreen bush uh, native to Asia. I mean, of course, the name of the tea leaves is, is perhaps, you know, something that most people don't even know or, or remember. But yeah, that's the name. And But it's basically a 
you know, uh, a plant from uh, Asia. Uh, and there are two, you know, different recognized uh, varieties of the plant. Mm-hmm. Um, the the one that's uh, sinensis is uh, also known as Chinese tea. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other one is known as the Assam or the Indian tea, right. which is known as Assamica. Um, other drinks that we refer to as tea uh, could also be, you know, based on mint uh, leaves, chamomile, uh, fruit teas, different flavors. You know, nowadays, I mean, if you go to 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 any shop, you you'll see any supermarket. There, there's like a whole shelf of different flavors of teas, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever people like, they will have. You know, the ginger. There's there's this, there's that, you know, cinnamon, whatever. So there's always these additional flavors that are available. But essentially, teas are based from, you know, these plant leaves. Um, and there are many different herbal teas, uh, varieties of them. Uh, but we can put them into like six main categories. Right. White tea, green tea, oolong tea, yellow tea, black tea, which is the most widely used in the UK. Um but the question arises, if all tea originates from the same plant, what defines the different categories of tea? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess the answer to that would be that it all depends on how the leaves of the plant are processed. Um, many people use also sugar, for example, to sweeten their teas. Right. Uh, but honey is, is also an alternative, which is not only great, but it also has healing properties. I mean... Um, just to give you my own example, like I haven't been using sugar in my tea for many, many years now uh, mm-hmm. since I, you know, um, since I just started, you know, having honey in my tea. So one thing is that sugar on its own is probably not good. So I decided to, you know, just obviously other people also do it. So I saw it and I was like, okay, you know, I'm mm-hmm. going to put honey instead. And in the beginning it was, you know, you're used to a taste, but then you when you change it it's it's a bit different it's a bit difficult from the beginning because suddenly your tea tastes a little bit different so mm-hmm. but i started using honey and i think honey obviously is is great for for the health and it's got so many benefits um even quran you know islam tells us uh, you know allah the almighty said that there's there's um, you know shifa there's healing in in honey so honey is good so you know that's that's something that people put in tea, and obviously, personally, I I like to have honey in my tea, so it makes it sweet. But it's also you know, you you have a little bit of that uh, feeling that you you're not drinking something too you know unhealthy with with sugars. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, people put honey in their tea. Some people prefer sugar, um, but uh, if you can put honey in your tea, it's it's, it makes it sweet, but it also makes it, you know, good uh, for your health. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'm sorry, sorry to cut you. We have a guest um, uh, with her, with uh, with us, um, um, Doctor Sharon Hall. I'm I'm very sorry if I mispronounce your name. Um, um, she is a chief executive, uh, UKT and Fusion Association. Uh, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Um, peace be upon you. Uh, so, Doctor, we know um, um, tea originated in China, but how did it come to UK and uh, drinking tea become um, like very um, integral part of British society? Yeah, I mean, very popular part of British mm-hmm. society. Um, well, certainly your listeners can go to our website, tea.co.uk, to, to read the full history. Um, but the earliest 
first uh, recorded advertisement for tea from China dates back to 1658, we believe. Mm -hmm. However, tea drinking did not really become fashionable until after Catherine de Braganza. She was Mm -hmm. a Portuguese princess, married King Charles II in 1662. And she was known as a a tea addict, actually. She brought a chest of tea with her when she moved to uh, Britain. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't long before the wealthy people of the UK were, were following her lead. So this became the fashion. And that's how it all started. Mm-hmm. So, Sharon, tea became a, became so popular that tea smuggling became a thing. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, as it became really popular, the government of the time decided in their wisdom to impose a tax on tea in the late 1600s. And that unfortunately made tea unaffordable for many UK citizens. And this is what led to the tea smuggling um, that you're referring to and sometimes adulteration of the products. It wasn't a good situation back then. Um, And it wasn't until an act of parliament in 1784 that reduced that tea tax from 119% down to 12.5% that smuggling no longer became possible and it, it basically fizzled out. Mm-hmm. So, um, Sharon, um, so when when and why was the uh, humble tea bag invested and uh, <laughs> do you think this impacts the flavour of tea? Yeah, a really interesting question and, and you won't be surprised to know that the inventor of the tea bag was actually American because they do <laughs> have a love of labour-saving devices Um, and it was around the early 1900s that uh, Thomas Sullivan, who was a mm. New York merchant, started to send tea samples to his customers in small silken bags. Mm-hmm. And the customers assumed that these bags were intended as a device in, through which to make the tea. So they just put the, the full bag in the pot. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until they went back to him and complained that the, the mesh size of the bags was too small that he realized what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And so he started to develop different types of gauze and he made the first um, purpose-made tea bag. And, and today, tea bags tend to be made of um, paper, so mm-hmm. plant-based paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where they all started. Um, and it's interesting because uh really didn't, catch on here in the UK for quite some time, um, mm-hmm. particularly because the material shortages in the Second World War mm-hmm. meant that you couldn't really mass produce these things. And it wasn't until the 1950s when um, all manner of household gadgets were becoming popular that actually people started to to really desire the convenience of the tea bag. But you talked about taste, you asked about taste. Mm-hmm. And um, the purpose of the tea bag is rooted in the belief that um, Uh, for tea to taste its best mm-hmm. the leaves should just be brewed for a certain amount of time and, and your previous speaker was talking about different types of tea I heard and you know each of those teas has an optimal brewing time mm-hmm. and actually what the tea bag allows you to do is easily remove the tea leaves um, after you've brewed it for the optimal amount of time it's just a very convenient way to do it and you get the best taste. Mm-hmm. Sharon, um, I'm I'm really surprised that American um, invented this humble uh, tea bag. But yeah, so I've heard that uh, this tea bag um, also contains some kind of plastic as well, and which is very uh, harmful for your health. Is it is it correct? Well, it's not correct that anything in tea bags is harmful to your health because any any food and drink um, that has packaging, it, these pa- types of packaging have to be made 
from food safe materials. So that's one thing important thing to say. Um, actually, 98% of what is um, in a tea bag is is either plant based or organic. So the tea itself makes up most of the <laughs> tea bag. And then, as I've said, most tea bags tend to be made from paper, mm-hmm. which is plant based. And then about two percent of the tea bag is the steel, which traditionally has been conventional plastic. But actually, the um, industry's made great strides in moving towards a plastic seal that's called PLA, polylactic acid, which is a plastic made from plant materials instead. So, you know, a great innovation and a move forward. Mm-hmm. So, Sharon, you have written an article uh, around the world in 1980 teas. Uh, <laughs> what teas uh, from around the world uh, stick out most to you? Yeah, um, well, actually, we made quite a lot of videos and your listeners can go onto our YouTube channel, um, UK Talking Tea, to watch these videos about different teas. Um, But it's interesting, actually, a key message is really about the breakfast blend that most of us teas drink in the UK. So most of us drink black tea with a splash of milk in the UK. But this breakfast blend is actually a truly international tea. It tends to be a blend of tea from East African countries such as Kenya as well as teas from India and Sri Lanka mm-hmm. but since going on this virtual journey of, of the world of teas I've really become hooked on oolongs and again mm-hmm. I think your previous speaker mentioned <laughs> these and these are partially oxidized um, tea leaves of the Camellia sinensis plant and those teas have a very light floral liquor reminiscent of a narcissus, narcissus or hyacinth plant and they should be taken without milk but for something hearty, first thing in the morning, I do like a good strong Assam tea with milk, and you absolutely can't go wrong um, with the champagne of teas, which is a first flush jar- Darjeeling. But to be honest, I like so many, we could do a whole program just about that. <laughs> yeah, of course, why not? So, Sharon, um, previously we were we were having discussion that uh, you know tea is just not a drink um, for some countries. Um, be- it become a sign of you know get togethering and have a discussion with. Uh, with each other. So, um, how important is tea in the Middle East and in the Muslim nations? Well, I think it's important to say that tea is pretty much drunk everywhere, and you've hit on something really important there, that tea does bring people together. Um, It's actually, you know, very, there are very many tea ceremonies around the world, very different, very fascinating, but a big key fundamental part of those is about bringing other people to sit and talk and exchange ideas um, and tea is actually one of uh, you know the most important beverages in the world and it's mm-hmm. second most consumed after water right. in Britain we drink over 100 million cups a day but um, whilst we still rank in the top five tea consuming countries per head in the world um, the other countries where there's a large amount of tea drunk is tu- uh, Turkey, Libya, Morocco and actually the Republic of Ireland but on a c- per country basis it's actually China that lead the way in far, as far as consumption, followed by India, Turkey, Pakistan and Egypt. They're all major consuming countries. But mm-hmm. as a tea is drunk most, you know, most places in the world. Mm-hmm. So last question to you. How can you make a perfect cup of tea? <laughs> it's a great question. And, you know, I'll start this by saying, obviously, it's down to personal preference. But mm-hmm. first key message is uh, Smart Boil. So this is our new campaign. So when you go to make your cup of tea, always use freshly drawn water and only use the water you need. So either measure it out with your mug or your teapot first. Mm-hmm. And then 
this will mean that you are using less energy to boil that water, so you save time, money and energy, but it ensures that the tea has a good flavour because the, the freshly drawn water has oxygen bubbles in it and that draws out the best taste of the tea. You add one tea bag or one rounded teaspoon of tea leaves per person in um, your china cup or your teapot um, or in your mug, if that's the way you prefer to use it. And um, add, when you add the boiling water, brew for at least three minutes. So for your black tea, you need three to five minutes to really bring out the best flavour of the tea and get all the, the maximum beneficial polyphenol compounds in that drink. Um, once you've brewed your tea, um, remove the bag, mm. add your milk if that is your preference. Again, your previous caller talked about honey, so mm. if that's your thing, add it at that point. And I would say simply sit down, relax, and enjoy the R moment. I was taking notes and I've, I've, I've taken, taken my notes at how to make a perfect cup of tea. Thank you so much, uh, Sharon, to, uh, to come into our show. And uh, it was a very pleasure to have you. Uh, and assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Imran, uh, while you're taking your notes, I think <laughs> I'll probably go and have a cup of tea. <laughs> At this point, it sounded really good. Yeah, that's uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's how you make tea. I think um, it's quite interesting, actually, to, to, to learn about uh, the uh, the different aspects. Of course, uh, it's really interesting. Um, but Imran, I think we can go to our next guest. We have uh, Jane uh, uh, Pettigrew with us, who is the Director of Studies at the UK Tea Academy as well. Um, I think we have Jane with us. Jane, good afternoon. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Dragon Show. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining. How are you doing? You're right? Yes, fine. I'm busy working away on my tea projects. <laughs> oh, okay. You, you've, you're doing a lot of work on, on tea as far as we know. You've, you've written 17 books on tea and have uh, also received multiple awards, including... Uh, British Empire Medal for your services to tea. Um, sounds great. Tell us, um, how was your journey and uh, what makes you so passionate about tea? It's very interesting. Thank you for the question. I grew up in the 50s when families drank tea as an everyday beverage and I, I had no idea it was so interesting until I got involved in uh, a tea shop that I owned and ran in uh, London in the 1980s and I think once you start looking at tea and thinking about everything it brings to us into our lives it becomes absolutely fascinating and one of the one of the driving um, forces behind more and more people getting really involved in tea is the health benefits there are so many things that tea is good for and it's not just physical it's actually very good at calming us down when we've had a really stressful day Uh, but as I began to research the history of tea in this country and of course then you realize it's pretty much everywhere around the world but as I started to research British tea history I realized that it actually had underpinned our social life for well I suppose it's nearly nearly four centuries now it was the 1650s uh, when tea first arrived and it was just so unknown at that point and gradually it's it's had such an influence on our social life and it's influenced things like music and fashion and the way people designed their houses and the dresses that women wore to take tea in the Victorian period. There are so many different elements to the tea story and it's one of those subjects that the more you, you dig into the history, the more you realise you just don't know and how that, I think that gives it its absolutely fascinating quality. Uh, so Jane, um, Jane, I'm a, uh, I'm a personally a lover of tea, 
but uh, <laughs> but um, you know tea is very much um, very much associated with British culture but I'm not seeing people people are more moving towards coffee why is that I think um, coffee has been very firmly entrenched in our uh, in our culture since I think I remember back in the 1950s it became a really mm-hmm. big thing after dinner um, and I think people then began to ignore tea and to drink more tea bags which actually kind of takes away the charm of tea and since around the 19 I would say early 1990s there's been a real resurgence of interest in uh, what tea is where it comes from who actually makes the tea you know people forget to think about the skill and the time and the love that goes into producing not just tea but some of our other commodities that we really take for granted and um, people are beginning to ask more questions now about it and the big difference that we're noticing is that people are turning away from the, the cheaper teas, the cheaper tea bag teas, which mm-hmm. are they're blended with teas from many different countries, uh, and we don't necessarily know where those teas come from. We're we're now at UK Tea Academy. We're focused very much on loose leaf tea, mm-hmm. which comes from specific places, and then we can learn more about uh, who's made it, how they've made it, how they're treated, why they why they're growing tea, etc. So yeah, there's a lot of reasons I think for tea to become the um, it, it's it's really become very trendy in the last 20 years or so right so jane you are one of uh, one of the founder of the uh, uk tea academy yes, yes. Um, why did you set this up and what is uh, what is offered to anyone who is interested in taking the course sure sure yes thank you for the question i um before we actually set up uk tea academy i had actually been running courses and classes myself um with other tea people And we just did a day course um, for people who had a little bit of an interest in tea. But we began to realize that there was more need for tea training, not just amongst people who love drinking tea, but amongst people who work with tea. And that means that we were approaching food and beverage staff, anybody in the service industry who was serving tea or coffee or chocolate or wine or whatever. But tea had taken a back seat for a long time. And we Mm -hmm. wanted to be able to give information about the teas that were being served that were written about on the menu. And particularly um, as afternoon tea became more and more popular, the tea element was almost kind of forgotten Mm -hmm. and it was all about the food and the venue and the excitement and the celebration that afternoon tea uh, links into and so we wanted to um, try and help uh, anybody running a tea a tea shop or a tea lounge in a hotel or a restaurant we wanted them to understand that there is always a better way to serve tea and so we put together courses that would actually help uh, train staff from the real basics, you know, what is tea? Mm-hmm. Um, where does it come from? How is it made? How should we brew it? What can you talk to customers about the stories behind the teas? I mean, it is actually very, very interesting, but we wanted people to be able to talk about that because then it would bring tea to life for everybody. And the more that we've taught people, the more we realize there really is a lot of, of passion about it. And it's right. one of those subjects that, you know, when you get to know a little bit about it, it kind of takes a hold and it wants to demand more from you. I would say to to students, you know, once you get involved in tea, once tea finds you, it's never going to let you go and you just go on from one level to the next. So, Jane, we just had the International Tea Academy Awards. How did this uh, event go and how important it is uh, in the tea community? Yes, it's the first um, award of this type in in, certainly in Britain. Mm -hmm. 
there are lots of other awards around the world um, which are run very often by um, tea lovers, tea, maybe tea magazines, they all get together. We decided that we needed to do something like that here in, uh, in Britain. And so we got in touch with everybody around the world that we knew. We, we, we all have a lot of contacts around the world with people who make tea and blend tea and sell tea. And we just told them that we were planning this competition and would they like to submit their teas. And we were asking, it's called the Leafies, because we didn't want tea bags. We wanted only um, leaf teas to actually put into the competition. And we got together a judging team of nine people which mm-hmm. included some of my tutors who are specialists in different uh, areas of tea, so China and Japan and Taiwan and India and Africa and, and Sri Lanka, etc. And so we had um, some of those specialists with us and one or two people from outside uh, UK Tea Academy. And once we had been sent the teas, we had very good submission for such a new, um, a new event. We had, I think, something like 300 teas sent in. Mm-hmm. And so we spent a week judging them. We, we broke up into groups ourselves and the teas were categorized into different groupings and we tasted and we tasted in silence. We tasted absolutely blind. We didn't know anything about the teas that we that were put in front of us. All we knew was that it was either a green tea or a black tea or a white tea, etc. And we judged it according to various criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, in each group of judges, there were three or four people. And um, so we didn't talk amongst ourselves. We just put our marks down and then we would talk about it. Um, and this went on for a week. And then we worked out who all the winners were or the people who were highly commended. And we had a wonderful ceremony last Wednesday at Fortnum and Mason with people who had flown in specially from Sri Lanka or Japan or New York, um, Germany and mm-hmm. Holland. We had some um, really good teas in from new growers in Germany and Holland, which might sound really strange <laughs> to listeners mm-hmm. because that's very, very new. You know, we right. think of the traditional areas like India and Sri Lanka, etc. Mm-hmm. But there's some amazing teas being made around the world. So we had this lovely award ceremony and now it's being written up in, in various magazines and Fortnum and Mason are actually going to be selling on their very, um, very long and um, full tea list they're going to be selling some of the, the winners so it's a it's a really good way to raise awareness of tea um to uh, to allow people to realize that it's not just every day um a, a tea bag with some little chopped up leaves in it's actually there's a lot more to it than that mm-hmm. and there are so many different kinds of tea that it actually offers something for absolutely everybody Right, amazing. So, Jane, um, um, you also had five different special awards for those affecting positive um, change for the environment, the industry or the community. Can you tell us about more? Yes, these were very exciting and we had a lot of uh, discussion about who we wanted these awards to go to. And the first award was, um, we called it the Gaia Award, which is actually for anybody who's working uh, very closely with the environment and Mm -hmm. worrying about everything in the area where you're growing your tea or making your tea. So, you know, uh, people, the wildlife, the ecology of the area, very, very important. And we awarded that to um, a wonderful woman in Hawaii who has been growing tea for about 20 years on Kilauea Volcano. Tea loves volcanic soil. It's, it's full mm. of minerals and it, it grows really well there. Right. But um, Eva Lee has been growing tea for 20 years or so in her forest garden with her husband, Chu. And um, they have always been very, very conscious and they've spread the word about how important it is to not just dig up the ground and put tea plants in, but also to work with um, native forests and indigenous trees, etc. And to be aware of birds and other, other beings, other things 
things that are happening in, in the area. So we awarded her that um, very special Gaia Award. And then we chose a Japanese com- company to um, award our Maverick Award to because what's really interesting about I- I- Iwanaga Seicha, they are a tea-growing company who actually make a lot of black tea. And, of course, black tea in Japan is very, very unusual. For mm-hmm. hundreds of years, they've been making green tea. Mm-hmm. But this company realized that the Japanese connoisseur and um, consumer of tea was very interested in black teas. They've always bought teas from, from us in, and, and other black tea uh, producers in, in, the, in the world. But now they're actually growing their own. And this, com- this company, um, Iwanaga Seicha, is, has really been thinking outside the box. And um, they've, they were really just focusing on black tea and making that tea available through um, wholesale channels or retail channels to get it out to um, the public. So mm-hmm. that was very exciting. Um, the next award was called the Pioneer Award, and we, we awarded that to a really clever woman in Wales. She has got a big tea garden. And again, you know, people might be very shocked <laughs> to hear that there's really good tea coming out of Wales. But she started growing tea probably about 10 years ago. She came to us when she first started to to learn about tea and now she's making the most wonderful green and black teas she's had a lot of help from uh, specialist consultants but she's really doing something special she's now bottling tea she's making kombucha which is the fermented tea that people love so much and she's growing uzu which is a a, a japanese fruit Mm -hmm. which is very good for flavoring tea so she's really gone from strength to strength and we absolutely love what she's doing so she got the pioneer award and another similar story we had an award called tea for life award which meant we wanted to give this to someone who was creating jobs thinking about the community helping um, a particular place a village or whatever to make more money to to have a long-term goal um, and a sustainability involved in what they were doing and this award went to an amazing girl from Myanmar who we know very well she's one of our students and her village um, on the east coast on the east side sorry of Myanmar um, uh, most of the village are her relatives Mm -hmm. and so she decided she was going to work with somebody to help her go back to her village. She's actually an accountant in London, but they went off to her village in Myanmar Mm -hmm. and discussed with her family how they could make a tea that would actually sell in the West. Mm -hmm. They make a tea already, but it's quite bitter and a little bit harsh, and it's not so um, palatable for people in the West. Mm -hmm. And so this wonderful girl, Piu Piu Tue, she actually worked with one of our trainers, who is a really good tea maker, and they travelled to Myanmar, and they built a factory in six weeks, and they started making tea under the tuition and um, guidance of our um, tutor, who's called Beverly Wainwright. And they're now making this wonderful black tea and also green tea, but their black is fantastic. And they're now selling it um, through Pew Pew, who's our, our student. She's actually selling it into America and into Britain. And it's such a wonderful story because she's actually sent every spare penny from what she earned back to her village and has set up this amazing sustainable business, which will always now bring the village money uh, but they're also you know working with with the environment as well which mm-hmm. is really wonderful and the last one of these awards was the lifetime achievement award which went to an amazing guy in southern india he's called indy Kanna, and he recently with his daughter built a very very unusual tea factory and his plan was to actually again think outside the box make teas which were completely different from the standard black teas that are usually made in the south of India and um, make uh, teas that were similar to some out of China or out of Japan. They even invented a brand new tea using the stalks of the tea shoots, which is again very unusual. And he's done so 
so much to help people make better tea, understand how to grow tea. He's always mm-hmm. worked all mm-hmm. over India, so absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. And he emailed me today, said one of our friends took the award down to him, which he's now got today, and he's absolutely tickled pink uh, with the piece of glass, the, the crystal glass that we've awarded him. So it's been really lovely and um, it's amazing, Jane. It's amazing to have yeah. uh, to have all of these stories. It was. It was wonderful to have you uh, on our show, and uh, we'll try to get you back uh, on another show, uh, which we're doing Great. on the tea. And uh, it was it was pleasure to have you. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Thank you, thank, thank you, Imran, thank you. so much. Thank That's you. really kind. Thank you so uh, much. Bye bye. Bye. Uh, wow, this... that was uh, that was very interesting, uh, I think there's so much um, you know uh, background to to where the teas come from, which is really interesting mm-hmm. to learn from uh, from uh, Jane. Uh, however, I think we have on the line uh, our next guest, which is uh, Candice Mason, who is founder of Mother Kappa uh, Tea uh, Limited, joining us as well. Good afternoon, PC upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show, Candice. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for uh, coming. Yeah, so it's been a really good conversation so far. Um, but as we uh, talked about earlier as well, the Popularity of tea um, has sort of kind of decreased a little bit in the UK in favor of coffee. Do you think people are um, sort of educated enough on the impact uh, that coffee has on us, or is it just that it's, it's something well, that's interesting? Well, um, it's definitely an interesting question because there are a lot of coffee shops uh, popping up always on our high street, but tea is still one of the most popular drinks next to water across the whole world. And in fact, in the UK, um, 36 billion cups of tea are drunk every year. Um, So I would say it's still a pretty popular drink. Um, I'm not sure people are educated necessarily. Um, I think people like caffeine. The main difference between a coffee and the caffeine that you get in tea is an ingredient called L-theanine. Um, and L-theanine is a really powerful antioxidant and it's really good at helping the body slow the absorption mm-hmm. of caffeine. So the um, effects of the caffeine that you will find in a natural tea um, should last longer and give you a longer and slower energy boost. And it shouldn't give you um, that sort of stress element, those jitters that you get from coffee. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think tea is a much better choice. Yeah. So, Karin, um, many of us uh, pop a pill when we uh, we are sick or going to going through a life change. Do you do you think herbal medicine are underrated? Yeah, well, this is the bit that I'm really interested in. So, mm-hmm. I 100% believe in herbs and plants as being used for medicinal purposes. Um, it's got out, you know, tens of thousands of years worth of history behind it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, most of the pills and um, that we medications that we take today all derive from plant-based ingredients that are then synthetically added to. Now, mm-hmm. I think the key thing here is there is always a place for medication. Um, we've, you know, we're very advanced for our, for our medicine that we can offer. But I do think there's an element that it's very quick to just pop a pill or just run to the GP and get something from them. Um, and for me personally, um, on a health journey that I've gone through, I have explored what natural ingredients could I um, turn to that would support my well-being before I go down the route of needing medication. Mm-hmm. So, um, the um, many of us uh, like um, talk us through the, some teas and their healing and healing properties that our listeners should be really, really, you know, thinking about and then drinking that tea. 
So, yeah, for me personally, I like um, to turn to herbal ingredients and in particular adaptogens. So there's one one of my absolute favourites, which is an ingredient called ashwagandha, um, which is known to have a balancing effect on the body and bring it into equilibrium. It's packed full of antioxidants, so it's really good at fighting illnesses and keeping us um, you know, at our strongest self. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I say, the tea, and, and I'm not talking about the tea that you necessarily buy on your high street supermarket, but the teas that the lady was speaking about before, you know, natural whole tea leaves mm-hmm. that are packed full of this L-theanine, which is really good for supporting the body, um, which is also packed full of polyphenols and antioxidants. So again, really good quality ingredients to be having in your system. Lastly, again, is, is there any specific shape, material, size of cup uh, you should use to enjoy the <laughs> ultimate cup of tea? That's a very good question. I think, yes. I mean, I, I, I actually did my training with the lady you were speaking with before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, yes, as a, as a trained tea sommelier, you would be trained in the art of tea drinking and brewing. And there are lovely little pots and teacups that you can get. Mm-hmm. I think for the majority of us that are everyday tea drinkers, uh, my suggestion would be to think about actually using filtered water rather than tapped water. Um, you'll get a much uh, better taste in the quality of your tea if you use filtered water mm-hmm. um, and also there are some studies that suggest there are all sorts of nasties, nasties in your in your tap water so if I was going to make a, a suggestion to the regular tea drinker I would say convert to filtered water. Thank you so much and uh, um, it was a pleasure to have you on our show. Um, um, peace be upon him. Asalaamu Alaikum. Thank you ever Thanks. so much for having me. I really appreciate that. Thank Take you so much. Now. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Yes uh, so we were discussing um, about um, with Candace on different um, aspect of tea and uh, about uh, her uh, com- uh, company as well and the healing power of um, teas and herbal medicines. Um, and we have uh, um, another um, guest um, um, who is um, Anil Patel. And uh, can you hear us, Neil? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Uh, Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you doing? Um, good. Um, so he's a founder and owner of um, Amala Chai, located across London, including King's Cross. Um, so Anil, um, we have seen uh, like uh, multiple choice shops and stalls open up recently. Uh, why do you think tea has become such a popular way to bring people together? Yeah, well, firstly, I think tea has always been a popular way of bringing people together, particularly within the South Asian community. Um, in India, having a chai is a way to take a break from daily hustle and bustle. And I know from my family, each time we have people over, the first thing we do is get a big pot of chai on. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, as the South Asian diaspora is so large in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, more and more chai stores have been opening up to pro- provide that taste of home for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, as people move away from coffee, more and more Westerners are looking for an alternative option. And it just so happens that People have a lot of exposure to the word chai, there's chai lattes in cafes. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, a lot of people have traveled to India and South Asia, so they're familiar with um, having real Indian chai. Um, So the popularity is growing fast. So it's really the perfect time uh, for chai to have its time. Mm -hmm. So Akhil, um, what's the difference between um, chai tea that is really um, available in lots of coffee shops and your masala chai? 
Yeah, so I'm not sure why even people label it as chai tea, as chai means tea. Um, but yeah, chai latte is just the Western take on masala chai. It's usually a hot milk frothed with the sugary spice syrup. And it's really overly sweet and uh, really not that nice. Uh, well, some people might like it, but um, but yeah, masala chai is a spiced mm-hmm. milky tea brewed over a period of time. Uh, across South Asia, you have chai wallas making this drink. Um, they'll be adding the tea, the spices, the milk, the water, strongly brew it for over maybe 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. The great thing about chai is each chai wala and family have their own recipe. Uh, in Kashmir, you have the pink moon chai. Mm-hmm. Some masala chai recipes just use ginger, cardamom, and clove. And in the Middle East, it's quite common to add saffron to their chai. And they also say it's called karak chai. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, it's uh, no chai, no two chais are the same. Okay, so a key ethos behind masala chai is, is one that support um, sustainably and ethically. Um, sorcering uh, the tell us why it is so important to you yeah so when i started amala chai um you know i was looking at the tea and spice market and i looked how dominated it was by large corporations the tea and spices are passed through multiple middlemen and by the time it gets to the end customer the tea and spice flavor would be extremely inferior to what it once was on top of this the farmers would make no money and their mm-hmm. skills aren't valued Mm-hmm. For this reason, it was extremely important we partnered with farms directly and to support farmers who practice regenerative and organic farming techniques. Right. This provides them with a sufficient living wage for the farmers, as well as working towards improving climate change and long-term soil health, mm-hmm. uh, which pesticides are in. Mm-hmm. So if we don't break this system and support regenerative farming techniques, what will happen is more farmers will move away from from farming, companies will move towards machine picking, and as a result, big corporations will dominate the market with a far inferior product. Mm-hmm. So, could you talk? You talked about the farmers. So, new rules ha- um, rules have come in uh, in the last few years, impacting Indian farmers. Tell us about how important, uh, how this uh, important, and how this these new rules impact uh, the producer of the tea in India. Yeah, so it was the Farm Bill Act, which was Modi who put it in place in September 2020. Um, the laws basically deregulated the government wholesale run market. Uh, so normally farmers would get a fair minimum price. Um, so they were always guaranteed that whatever, not just tea, but any goods, they would get that minimum price. The mm-hmm. new rules basically allowed corporations to sell uh, to buy directly from the farmers. So this would uh, end in the minimum guaranteed price and therefore reducing the price that they would receive for the crops. Mm -hmm. So this led to big corporations setting the price they want and really squeezing the farmers below the living wage. But fortunately, after several mass protests and the farmers union appealing to the Supreme Court, those laws were repealed in December 21. Um, So it's good that was changed. Mm -hmm. So, Kil, we recently have pandemic as well, and you were saying that a farmer is struggling as well. So how can people play their part to support this industry? Yeah, so it's really challenging times because costs are going up uh, and, you know, it's hard for family tea and spice estate to remain competitive, um, as well as climate change with unpredictable weather patterns. So producers are currently left with a choice either to increase the price of their goods or reduce their labor by using fertilizer machines. But it's good if states are learning to adapt to unusual weather patterns using different techniques. And 
the new wave of sustainable and ethical consumerism is, you know, really taking flight in the Western world, giving value to single estate premium tea and spices. So we as consumers can make conscious effort to buy sustainably sourced tea and spices and educate those around us on the harmful effects that, you know, mass produced goods have on on the world of tea and spices. Mm. Thank you so much, uh, Anil, to have. Uh, it is my pleasure to have you on our show, and uh, um, we are looking forward to um, maybe call you some other time. And assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Great, thank you so much. Thank Take you, care. Sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So this uh, this this was um, Anil Patel. Um, we are discussing about different uh, kind of uh, tea and what is the situation in India. Uh, the the, yeah. the farmers are uh, protesting there. Yeah, no, very interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think we haven't touched upon this aspect maybe mm-hmm. uh, um, that much in in our show. But yes, obviously, in our Asian culture, it's mm-hmm. also you know very very important. Uh, sometimes even when people aren't have to like you know break the ice or you know socialize, uh, you know it's it's normally over tea, and there are so much you know uh, different flavors as well. You have kadak chai you have mm-hmm. masala chai you have other types of teas you know that are really strong and mm-hmm. can can really help you get some energy if you need need to get uh, things done mm-hmm. um similar to you know why people like coffee but yeah it's uh, very interesting and obviously if you go to different parts of the country now you you'll find some you know um indian shops as well where you, or you know pakistani shops as well where you, you know chai wala and, and things like that you know places that that uh, solely you know focus on tea and with tea obviously there's there's other things that people like to have um but um that again shows us how um you know teas um, are important from different cultures uh let's go to our next guest Imran shall we we, we should, can speak to uh Christine um who is going to uh speak to us about bubble tea because uh Christine is an expert in bubble tea Good afternoon. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show, Christine. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm very honored. Thank you. Thank you very much. So for our listeners, I mean, I personally know what bubble tea is, but there might actually be some people who might not know what bubble tea is. I mean, I'm sure people have seen, you know, the stands popping up here and there, you know, in the, in um in 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 shopping centers, in in uh, in other places. So so what what's the concept? Oh that's a that's a great uh idea for me to be able to explain it really quick just in case. Um yeah, it can vary. It can it can be um a milky tea type thing, it can be a milky tea with flavor, it can be a fruity type tea with different flavors. There's also um non-tea types for people who don't enjoy having tea necessarily, and we can even dive into different types of coffee as well. But it does originate from Taiwan and the Southeast Asian area. and it's definitely spread across the world now um for all different people to enjoy both more traditional taiwanese and also the new age type of bubble tea drinks which i like to call boba 4.0 which simply means it's more of an updated version to be able to share that tea drinking culture amongst everyone around the world so that way they can find a drink that they will enjoy themselves mm-hmm. sounds like a mobile phone with an update <laughs> <laughs> um so you you have owned uh, shops and led master classes in bubble tea um so so how 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 is that made and um uh, and 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 
like what has the response been from from the clients well, I think originally um, I was one of the first shops in the UK that started back in 2015. So I'm originally from the west coast of America in the Los Angeles area, and bubble tea was already very popular. And when I brought my shop and my concept to the West Midlands, uh, people were a bit apprehensive to take it up. But after I shared with them the delicious flavors, and the drink itself is quite unique because it's not just um, a tea or a tea with milk, but it has something in it called a topping. And what a topping is, is traditionally it's a tapioca pearl, which is like a little chewy uh, dessert delicacy that we cook every four hours. We make it from scratch by hand. It takes an hour and a half to cook. And so either we would add that in it, or we have little uh, jelly type things, which are usually made from seaweed agar. Um, and so those are quite cr crunchy. But then last but not least, one thing that become, has become really popular in the United Kingdom and also in Europe in particular, not so much in other countries, but definitely here, is are these little popping juice balls. So I'm sure you've probably seen them. You bite down on them, and they burst with juice flavors, so like strawberry, mango, pineapple. And um, those tend to be quite popular as well. So mm. it's, it's a very special uh, process of brewing the tea, and actually making the beverage, but then allowing the customer to be able to customize it by choosing what flavors they'd like. So it's a really fun beverage. Okay. And looking at the health aspect now, obviously it does look like it's more than it's more like a you know added sugar, and there might be some you know uh, sugary um, syrups or, or things in that. Is it really you know healthy, or is it is it a little bit, you know, something that has maybe more sugar than, than people would want to have? Well, I guess it depends on the cultural background. So for mm. myself, um, having grown up in America, I, as, a, as a kid, as a teenager, I would always go out and get a milkshake or a frozen yogurt or ice cream, um, you know, and then, of course, from there, eventually I, I went on to my ice-blended coffee-type drinks. So if mm -hmm. you compare from my culture... It's, it's the same. It's a dessert-type beverage. Um, so for me, it's not something that I would drink necessarily four times a day or maybe even once a day, per se, depending on if I'm considering my health benefits or not. But it isn't something that a lot of different cultures will consider to be um, overly sweet or overly sugary. And the benefit of it is, now, when you go to an ice cream shop or a place that makes milkshakes, they will um, have their basic flavor and their basic ingredients, and you can't customize it necessarily. But with the bubble tea, you have the option at most shop locations, if you ask, can it be less sweet or can I please have no sugar, they will be able to customize it for you. So you'll be able to have some of the benefits of the tea, and then you have the option of having uh, more or less sugar added. So that's, that's a great benefit for it. Yeah, and um, is is that something that obviously we're talking about tea, and you know it's it's very easy to make a cup of tea at home. But is it the same with bubble tea? Is it something that you know people can maybe you know buying the bubbles or whatever from from the shop or something? But can they make something like that at home, a beverage like that? Well, yes and no. Um, if you just want to go for basic Taiwanese flavors then I would recommend um, just simply trying out a really deep 
uh, black tea, like an Assam or some sort of black tea blend, letting it just have a really nice deep brew and adding some sugar and milk and then shaking it with some ice. And that will kind of give you a basic. Then you can kind of experiment from there with condensed milk and evaporated milk and different things like that. But if you want to get into the more intricate uh, different flavors of the bubble tea, then you will have to try to find a way to source some supplies. And usually if you do a simple online search, you can find at-home box kits. And they will supply you with small samples of you know, powders and syrups and things like that that you can then make at home. Same with, like you said, same with the juice balls um, and the jellies and the tapioca pearls. And um, the one thing that I would definitely recommend, though, for any, for any bubble tea shop, because some of them are certified halal, for example, and others aren't, but it doesn't mean that the ones that aren't certified, their products aren't halal. It just means they haven't decided to go down that road. So I would definitely recommend for all of your um, listeners, if they want to go to a bubble tea shop and they just want to you know, double check and ask, ask the employee, ask them to ask the manager, just to double check because really it would only be the toppings area. Um, generally, historically, they are halal, but you just want to double check for each and every bubble tea shop that you go to. Okay. Kristen, thank you very much for your time. I, I know we're coming towards the end of the show. We're very interesting and very grateful that you took uh, time out as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. It was a pleasure. Have a good evening. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. So um, that was um, our show for today. That We'll try to give the little bit inside um, and, and of the tea and what is the history of the tree and what are the different flavors of uh, tea. And uh, we are coming uh, to an end of the show. And uh, on our side, uh, please forgive us um, uh, our shortcomings if I may, if we have made some uh, mistake. And I, I also like to um, um, thankful to our team and our um, uh, scriptwriters. And uh, keep listening, Wasif Islam show. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.